Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. My name is Becca Bissadolshensky, and I'll be your host guiding you as we take a deep dive into all things pelvic floor and research-based. Whether you're a pelvic newbie or a seasoned clinician, I'm here to help busy therapists listen through the Women's Health Study Guide. So if you're studying for the Women's Certified Specialist Exam or just interested in learning more about pelvic health research, we've got you covered. everyone, and welcome back to an article by Aaron Butler, Iris Cologne, Maurice Drusen, and Jessica Rose. This article is on postural equilibrium during pregnancy, decreased stability with increased reliance on visual cues. So this is another one of those quick and dirty articles, so I'm going to follow up with the Cook 2007 article on interrater reliability and diagnostic accuracy of pelvic girdle pain classification. So the purpose of this study was to determine whether there are changes in postural equilibrium during pregnancy and to examine whether the incidence of falls increases during pregnancy. So during pregnancy, nearly one quarter of employed women sustain a fall, a rate that's comparable to elderly people age 65 and older. During pregnancy, the total weight that's gained is a 16% to a 23% increase in body weight based on a mean weight reported for women in the U.S. The lower trunk has significantly greater rates of change in weight than all other body segments during the second and the third trimesters of pregnancy specifically. And as we know, there's that anterior and superior shift to the center of gravity in those women. So a quantitative analysis of standing posture revealed a more posterior head position and an increase in lumbar lordosis and anterior pelvic tilt. So this study design included taking postural static balance measurements from 12 pregnant women, one being at 11 to 14 weeks, another being 19 to 22 weeks, and the last being 36 to 39 weeks gestation, and then also at six to eight weeks after their delivery. They compared this to 12 nulli gravid control subjects who are matched for age, height, weight, and BMI. So there were some exclusion criteria, and that's going to include medical conditions like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, gestational diabetes, hypertension, or any musculoskeletal or neurologic abnormalities. Subjects were asked to stand quietly on a stable force platform for 30 seconds with their eyes open and closed. Path length and average radial displacement were computed on the basis of the average of three trials for each condition. These women were then asked at each session if they had sustained a fall in the previous three months. For results, postural stability remained relatively stable during the first trimester. Things got a little bit more interesting in those second and third trimesters though. So the values for path length and average radial displacement with eyes open and closed were increased significantly compared with the control subjects, which indicates diminished postural balance. The difference between the eyes open and closed values of path length also continued to increase as pregnancy progressed. So in order to explain some of those changes, there's a few points to consider. In general, the rate of weight gain during pregnancy is small during the first trimester, and then it becomes higher and more linear during those second and third trimesters, with a higher rate of weight gain in the second trimester than in the third trimester. The gradual weight gain that occurs during the first trimester may explain the maintenance of postural stability that was found in the study population during that first trimester. The higher rate of weight gain in the second and the third trimesters may explain the decrease in postural stability during that time period. So these findings suggest a need for postural training during pregnancy and the postpartum period. 
Dynamic and static balance training exercises, which could include things like Tai Chi and strength training, have been shown to improve postural stability in the elderly population. So despite the small sample size in this study, a decline in postural stability and an increased reliance on that vision for the maintenance of balance during pregnancy and postpartum period is pretty evident. As always, further studies would be super helpful. So moving on to Cook 2007 on interrater reliability and diagnostic accuracy of pelvic girdle pain classification. Another two for one special for you guys today. So this is another abstract since there's a paywall for the full article. This was written by a really well-known PT and researcher, Chad Cook, PT, PhD, Lisa Massa, PT, Ingrid Harm Hernandez, PT, Rachel Sinegari, SPT, Jennifer Adcock, SPT, Colleen Kennedy, DPT, and Carol Figures, PT, EDD. Going through the names may actually take longer than going through this abstract. So the objective of the study was to measure the reliability of the classification system for pelvic girdle pain and diagnostic accuracy of selected exam and clinical specialty findings for the diagnosis of pelvic girdle pain. The design involved a prospective epidemiological study of pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain. Consecutive subjects were recruited and classified using criteria defined by previous studies. Two clinicians examined the subjects and classified each patient into one of five classification groups. Clinical examination and clinical special tests were performed on the patients with pelvic girdle pain. Statistical analysis involved intra-observer agreement using a kappa statistic and sensitivity and specificity values for the exam and clinical special testing. So let's get into results. 21 subjects were included in the analysis. Aggravated percentage of agreement for the classification system was 84.6%. The kappa was 0.78 with a P of less than 0.0001, which indicated substantial agreement during selection of the classification system. If anyone remembers what a good P is from our prior discussion, that P is great. Most clinical exams and clinical special test findings demonstrated low sensitivity and high specificity, whereas clusters of findings, which I think is really important, so the clusters of findings, including the lunge, the manual muscle testing of the hip of the lower extremities, and passive range of motion of the hip, demonstrated the strongest diagnostic value. So in conclusion, selected tests and measures are moderately discriminatory in diagnosing pelvic girdle pain. They found that a classification system for diagnosing pelvic girdle pain demonstrates a strong agreement and may be useful for clinicians. So the abstract is kind of helpful, but it doesn't go into the classification systems for determining different pelvic girdle pains. Um, So I want to review one of the articles that we've talked about before, just to kind of go over some of the special tests and what they're going to show. That was the evaluation of clinical tests used in classification procedures in pregnancy-related pelvic joint pain. That was by three authors, Han Albert, Mona Godskissen, and Jess Westergaard, and that was that Danish article. So they had found for SI joint pain, we're supposed to be looking at that posterior pelvic pain provocation test, Minnell's test, and Patrick's Faber test. For pubic symphysis pain, we're going to remember to look at Trendelenburg's test and just that palpation of the pubic symphysis. Something that I did before I let my APTA member lapse was I looked up the CPG of pelvic girdle pain on the APTA website, and there's a free article on that. If you're not an APTA member, 
Um, I believe Susan Clinton also put out an article in 2017. It's the pelvic girdle pain in the antepartum population. So it's a physical therapy clinical practice guideline linked to international classification of functioning, disability, and health. And that was from the section on women's health and the orthopedic section. So if you're feeling like the abstract and um, the prior articles did not go enough into pelvic girdle pain and you want to feel a little bit more comfortable, I'd recommend you look up the CPG on the APTA or Susan Clinton's article that she helped write with Elena Newell, Patricia Downey, and Kimberly Ferreria. And I hope I said all their names right. But that's just the quick articles for today. So next up, we have Foley 2006 on the sacroiliac joint pain, including anatomy, biomechanics, diagnosis, and treatment. So I hope to see you all listening there. Thanks for listening today. Bye, everyone. <laughs>